open your Bibles to the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. As we continue to make our way through the message, which is the unveiling of Jesus Christ and his plan for the world, the unsealing of the, the message of God, the plan of God in the world. We're going to begin reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes to us without error. That by your spirit, we're fed. By your spirit, we're made more like Christ. By your spirit, the word is alive. For it is alive, and it makes us alive. So we pray now that those who have ears to hear will hear. And even those who are deaf and blind and dead, that the call of God will go forth and bring life. And with this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. <clears throat> I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. So as we have um, been through chapter 1 <coughs> we've seen the preeminency of Christ and what the spirit wants us to see first as we go through this book of the revelation is that whatever else happens in this world whatever else happens as God unravels his plan unrolls his plan for this world um, Jesus is in control he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the first, the last. He is the Almighty. So we do not and cannot overemphasize the majesty of Jesus Christ. You cannot overemphasize the fact that he's from the beginning. He's before the beginning. He created the beginning. He's here with us now. And he has already written the end from the beginning. And he is over all, in all, and through all, the Almighty. You get that first. And then as everything else unravels, as we look at everything else that happens in the world, we'll see it is not because Jesus is weak. It is not because he is not in control. And then the next thing we saw was as he's working, God is working out his plan in this world, 
Where is he in this vision? For we know he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We know that the entire creation is encircles him. We'll see in Revelation the vision of the throne room. But in this part of the vision, what we see, him, he who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is on his throne in heaven, is standing in the midst of the churches. Who are envisioned here as candlesticks that we've seen in teaching of Jesus Christ himself, that we are to be a light in the world. We're to be on top of a lampstand. That's the work of the church in the world, to be a light to the world. But it's Jesus' light. We're to be circling Jesus. It's his presence that we have, that we look for. Just as in the Old Testament, the camp of Israel, all the tribes camped around the tabernacle, which was in the center, the presence of God. And when he would lead, they would follow. When they would leave, he's in front and they follow. And it's the same today. It's not one church, not one nation, but nations, many churches, which are all part of the body of Christ. There is one church of Jesus Christ, and yet is represented as seven candlesticks around Jesus Christ. Seven being the number of fullness and completion. And so this is a message to all the churches. The church in the world is the instrument institution, the, the, the means through which God, through Jesus Christ, accomplishes his purposes in the world, and you are that church. You're one of the lampstands. You're one of those candlestands. And so this is a message to us as well. And we'll see in these seven letters, which you'll find in the book of Revelation here, to these seven churches, one letter to each church, that... There's information is for all the churches. This letter didn't go to that one and this one to that one. They all got the same revelation. And then in it was like, well, here's the message of that one. And so, oh, that's me. And then you see the other one, well, he's talking to these guys too. And it's the seven. So we realize the spirit has a message for each individual church and for ours as well that we see in this message to all these seven churches. But one of the interesting thing is the particular way in which the letters to the individual churches pick up on something that is particular about the city or that church. And we're gonna see that in just a little bit here. Um, and I think some of that is to recognize that Jesus knows his churches through his spirit intimately. And he expects from us to be his church. And we as individuals are members of that church. We're our living stones being built together into a living temple of God. So our role as a church is to be at the center of God's plan and work in the world. And we'll see that we are the candlesticks. And that each of these letters starts with a characteristic of Jesus Christ that we've already been given in verse 1. And it says, and if you look at chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and we know that the, the angel, some people believe this is actually talking about angels that are over each particular church. There is a possibility that that's what this is speaking of, but most likely this is talking about the elders in that church, the, the leaders in that church, the pastors of that church. Because um, John the Baptist is called in one place an angel. Uh, John sent messengers to go talk to Jesus, and it says in Greek, John sent angels to go. 
and then they went back and Jesus sent angels, messengers. So we hear the word angel today and that's a Greek word that we just use as heavenly beings. But in the Greek, it meant messenger. So they didn't always hear the word angel and think angels like we do. So in this particular case, um, he's saying that the words of him who holds the seven holds the seven stars in his right hand. So what he's telling them here is, I have them. If you're, if they are not in my hand, they're they're not of me. And he, we also know he'll never let those go. But he has a responsibility. The elders, the pastors, the leaders of churches have therefore a responsibility to be following him and the message is to them and it also says he who walks among the seven golden lampstands so he's wanting particularly and we're going to see this is all from chapter one the the characteristics of christ that are mentioned there in the vision and then each one of these characteristics are going to be mentioned at the beginning of each one of these letters to the seven churches so that it has a particular meaning to each of them but what i want to do first is to skip down to verse 7 first half of it and, and read and he says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and that is repeated again in all seven letters but I need we need to hear that first and this is going to come up in each of the letters and I'm not necessarily going to begin with this each time but this is the important part for us to begin with is do we have ears to hear because he's saying he who has ears he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so jesus has an explanation about this when he's preaching himself uh, walking this earth if you keep your place here we read this so the disciples came and said to him why do you speak to them in parables and he answered them <clears throat> To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So some people get to know the secrets of heaven. And who are those people? Believers, born again, the servants of God as we hear in Revelation. Verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given. That's good news to the believer. And he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Isn't it interesting that what he's saying is the reason their eyes don't work the reason their ears don't work is a heart problem. It's a love problem. And their hearts have grown dull. So you have to ask yourself at this point, because this is what Jesus' message is to the churches. Well, your heart. Has it grown dull? Is it grown dull? I'm not even asking if you're a believer or not. Because if you're not a believer, you don't even have a heart yet. You just got a whole car, cold heart. You're a believer. How's it doing? Is it growing cold? You ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you just kind of fall out of love with them and trying to figure out how do I break up with them. But our problem oftentimes is you don't ever break up with them because you don't hurt feelings. And I think that's where a lot of people are at the church. I then broke up with the church, but I don't hurt feelings. I'm going to keep going. 
to get, kind of examine yourself at this point. What about my heart? Where is it? With their eyes, they can barely, with their ears, they can barely hear. And in their eyes, they have shut. They have shut. And it'd be one thing to think, all right, well, you know, they shut their eyes. So why would somebody do that? Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. So they don't want to see. And they don't want to hear. And they don't want to understand with their heart. Because then they turn and not heal them. How crazy is it? I don't, my heart's cold. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. Why? Because then I have to turn. Well, what would happen then? You'd be healed. And again, obviously his healing isn't talking about, you know, diabetes or whatever it is. You're physically, this is your spirit that needs healing. Your soul that needs healing. So we really have to ask ourselves, and this is a major point in Revelation, where's your heart? Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes. Now he's talking to the ones that are believers. They see, they hear. Bless a blessing. You see, it's a blessing. Because you're blessed. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, because they hear. And truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they didn't see it, and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. So hear then the parable of the sower. He's already told this one, now he's explaining it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and doesn't understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, so you, know, you got first thing, it's like you don't even get it. Okay, you know, you've all experienced that. You've given the gospel to somebody, it's like, hey, this gone. This is gone. 20, number 20, verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who they hear it and immediately they receive it with joy. And we're real quick, and you got to be careful, in some circles, um, somebody hears the gospel. I mean, it can be a worship service. They hear it, come forward, make profession of faith, and then we're out saying, 20 people got saved today. No, 20 people had a response to something you said, and they did what you said to do in response. Maybe they prayed a prayer. Maybe they felt like they meant it in their heart. They immediately received it with joy. Yet... He has no root in himself and endures for a while. But when tribulation, that's troubles, come or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So that's one of the reasons we don't do formal altar calls is because it can lead people to have a false sense of security in their salvation. You responded to an altar call. Somebody shared the gospel with you. You prayed a prayer. We don't believe that that's what saves you. We do not believe praying a prayer, even if you really, really meant it at the time, is what saves you. It's being born again by the Spirit, which produces outward faith, which is presented in works and beliefs and feelings of repentance and understanding and enjoyment and appreciation and love for the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And then even that's not enough to... The, your belief that I believe that isn't enough to save you. It's your faith that saves you. The one in whom you have faith, Jesus Christ. How do you know you're saved? You just got trust in the promises of God. Do you trust in the promises of God? We we're interviewing people for membership recently, and, and Rick Clayton asked a good question. He says, can you say the Lord's Prayer and, and uh, confess the words of the Apostles' Creed and mean it in your heart and be glad about it? 
You know, do you have joy? Where is your heart? I fear many, many people in the church had a, a one-time experience of emotional zeal and good feeling or remorse or something, and they responded and they prayed and they just had an emotional worldly experience and thought it was real. And so what Paul does is he goes through his life, he says, I finished a race. I made it. It's like he's always sort of hoping, I believe these promises and nobody gets snatched from his hand, but I can't turn and he's going to hold me tight. It's perseverance. The true believer perseveres to the end. And we have confidence that we will as we're trusting the promises of God. Anybody ever comes to me and they say, you know, I'm not sure I'm saved. You know, you start asking why and what's going on with this. But really when it comes down to it, it is, are you trusting in the promises of God? What are the promises of God and do you trust them? Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and then it proves unfruitful. So they get involved in the world and worldly things. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and then bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. So the question is, do we hear and are we bearing fruit? What seems to be the fruit of our, you know, do you see works of the flesh and what that produces and what that is? Or do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul says, you know, these things should be ours and increasing. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with self-doubt. It doesn't mean you might not stumble and trespass from time to time. But it means that there is overall a, a time of uh, uh, understanding you're in the darkness and then understanding that there is hope, that there is the gospel, that if, I'm, if, if I can't see his face, it's because I've turned my back on him. And if I just turn, there he is pursuing me. So where's your heart? And this is what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you hear? And if you cannot, it is a heart problem. And then in Acts chapter 28, so go to Acts 28 verse 23. Acts 28, 23. Paul is preaching. And he's in Rome. And there's a Jewish contingency there, and, and he's speaking to them, and they want to hear more about this. And he's being persecuted because of his faith, and they're like, well, let's hear him out. And so they, a large crowd gathers, verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, for Paul, um, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's using the Old Testament. So if a church says we're a New Testament church, we don't deal with the Old Testament, it's like, well, you're not following the path of Jesus or Paul, because he's using these things to show. And so therefore we know the Old Testament is capable by the Spirit to convince people about Jesus Christ. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. 
and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So it's not just Jesus. It's those who come after him and preach the gospel. It's us today have to ask ourselves, are we listening? In verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They'll listen. And what he means is not every single non-Jewish person is going to listen and be saved, but he's kind of saying, none of you are listening. Although some are, there's many that are being saved, but he's looking at the ones that don't. And so what he's saying is, uh, you know, from the parables of Jesus, there's a wedding that's being given and he invites people to come and they won't come. So he's like, well, go out and get me some other people. And so that's what's happening today is the kingdom of God is being expanded into the entire world. The spirit is going and he's inviting everybody to come. That's where we are today. The spirit calls everybody, not just Israel and the Jews, but he invites everybody to come. Now is the day of salvation. They'll listen. And it used to be that outside of Israel, it's like very few people came, very few people, because it was shut to them. But now the spirit has moved out. The strong man has been bound. We can go into the world. We were reached from different places in the world. But the question is, are you one of the ones that will hear? Or is your heart, that's how you know whether you are the ones, you are one of the ones that will hear. So if we don't hear the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, if you don't hear the Spirit, you will be hardened. Like Pharaoh in Egypt in Exodus, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Elsewhere it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it's both. So you can be hard and further hardened and further hardened. It's just like that rock bottom Mm -mm. There's always more bottom. There's always more rock. But how does God harden a hard heart? And it's by commanding something that that heart doesn't want to do. God tells a person to do something and their heart is hard. It just makes it harder. If you tell your kids, go get ice cream and they love ice cream, they cool with that. I don't care how bad they are. They will do that. And if you say, go clean the dishes and they have hard hearts, they're gonna fight it. And the more you command a hard-hearted person, the harder they get against you. The ultimate rebellion is against God. So as God commands things to the world, the world grows darker and harder. If your heart is growing cold and you hear the calling of God, you're gonna grow harder. It's what's gonna happen. So you need to cling to the gospel. Something has to change. And he gives us that as well. So even as Pharaoh refused to obey, even 
He refuses to obey at the point of seeing miracles performed and the power of God being exhibited. He still refuses to obey, even to the point of, of chasing after the people of Israel and being drowned and his great armies killed in the Red Sea, the very sea which God used to provide the means of escape to those who are of Israel. But the one who had his heart hardened was drowned in that same sea. God's people are those who followed the one who was following God, Moses. They're following God. So when God says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, it is a prophetic call to faith and obedience. Each of the seven letters that we're going to see as we go through the coming weeks follow the same formula. It starts off with naming the church. And this one is the church of Ephesus. Secondly, they give a characteristic of Christ from chapter 1. And this is uh, the one that uh, each of those characteristics holds a particular meaning for each of the messages. And so we're going to see that as well. And so we're going to say each of the characteristics have a message for us as well. Third, there's a strength, commendations. Except for the church at Laodicea, they don't get a commendation. That's bad. And then there's a problem that's listed, or a condemnation. And the only one that doesn't have a problem is Smyrna. That's cool. But they have their own problems going on, we'll see. And then there's a warning, and there's a promise. And that follows this same. Some people have noticed that it's like a covenantal style. Uh, it's laid out like covenants. Um, but it's at least the same in all these letters. So you can say this applies to all of us. So this is a letter to church in Ephesus. Paul lived in Ephesus for three years. He, he helped that church. There's, there's lots that had gone on in that church. They had good teaching. They knew what they were doing. It was a very wealthy city. It was at its height of wealth during this period in the New Testament times. They had a port. They had travel. They had the Temple of Artemis, also called the Temple of Diana. Uh, it was one of the, the, they had one of the seven wonders of the world. People came from all over the place to see this place. So it was very, they made a lot of money on this. And the church is planted right in the middle of this secular world. And in Acts 19, there's a riot that breaks out. So let's look at that real quick. So turn to Acts chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 19. Paul also has a letter he's written to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. But just to give you a feel for what's going on in, in Ephesus, Acts 19, beginning of verse 23. I will find it. There it is. At about this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This was Christianity. It was sometimes called the way. Um, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought no little business to the craftsmanship. So this guy making a bunch of money selling trinkets for people coming to see the, you know, he's like you go to Carowinds and you buy all that junk for your kids and 
<laughs> That's what he's selling. He's making a bunch of money on these silver shrines he's selling. And a lot of people are making a lot of money. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that's the land now called Turkey in this country, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now that's bad for business. But it's also interesting that enough people listening to Paul that it is impacting the economics of that region. Paul's not going out there and telling them we gotta pass a law against this. He's just telling people, what are you doing? We serve and worship the one true God. What are you doing? So people just stop buying the gods. They know the one true God. It has changed their life. And it's impacting these guys' lives. Verse 27. There is a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the whole world worship. Got a little exaggeration going on, but he knows what he's talking about. This is, this is huge. How many people do you know that worship the temple of Artemis or Diana today? I mean, I know a lot of people doing a lot of weird stuff, but that ain't one of them. Um, the temple was burned down. There's some ruins there now, but the church still stands. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ all over the world. We're here worshiping this Jesus. So something did happen, and it's the coming of Christianity. And where'd that come from? Not just Paul, the church. There's a bunch of people all being converted. And is Paul going out and converting individual people? Is he the one only about, he's the only guy out there doing evangelism? No, this church is, has to be out there telling everybody about Jesus. They're telling so many people so effectively about Jesus. The spirit is so powerfully at work at the church in Ephesus that this guy is like, we have a problem that's affecting our economy. And in verse 28, he says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, and why? Because that's where the money is. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in the travel. It's like, man, <laughs> you know, they're the two that got grabbed in this riot. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, Paul's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. My buddies are going in there. I'm, he's trying to get in. He's trying to get in. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. He was being held back. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. And then some cried out one thing and some another and the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd come together. And that, I love that line. There's just, there's a riot. Let's do it. All right. You know, that's what happens. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander among the Jews who had, put, who the Jews had put forth. And Alexander, Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Two hours! That's dedication and devotion. You ever cry out for two hours about Jesus Christ in the midst of a pagan population? These pagans in the midst of a Christian group were crying out, Great is Artemis. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, that's quite the clerk, by the way, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? They had 
cool little thing there too. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we're, we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Oh my goodness, if we could just charge people with rioting today, what a help it would be. That's how far we have fallen. Nobody is stopping this. Since there's no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So you see what's going on in Ephesus and the impact that the church is making there. And they're blaming Paul and they're grabbing his companions. And so when we come to the book of Revelation and we see the letter that's to this church here. And what they're commissioned for is like, I know your works, verse 2. Your toil and your patient endurance. And John has mentioned in the opening that he shares in the patience endurance that is in Christ Jesus. He's, he's like, I know you're patiently enduring a lot of things. Now, this is written later. This might be this next generation. This might be a generation after Paul. This could just be a few years after Paul. But this is later. You can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. <laughs> That's interesting. These guys are very good at making sure everybody has proper theology. These guys are very good at making sure that false apostles are coming in, that they're not false, that they're not real. They are very good at making sure false teaching is called false teaching. And God says, this is good. We should do that. We need to call out false teachers. We need to make sure that we are making sure that we are maintaining the true faith. But they've also abandoned the love they had at first. And some translation says you've abandoned your first love. And I think the reason they've changed that wording is because, for one, it, it matches better the Greek to say you've abandoned the love you had at first. But when we think of your first love, and you may be married to your first love, I don't know, but your first love is that person that you fell in love with the first time, and it could have just been, you know, it was nothing, maybe, but it's your first love, and it's a special love. But that's Jesus Christ. He's not saying you've abandoned Jesus Christ. Oh, in a sense, he's saying that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about the love you had. And how was it demonstrated? <laughs> you had the entire city in an uproar. You, your zeal was so great. Your love to share the gospel. Your love, your heart, the gospel had gripped you so much that the problems of the world, that the persecutions in this world, that the tribulations that came in, that all the things that can bother a person and the persecutions that were happening, they still went forth in that zeal. But he's saying now, even though you're maintaining good orthodoxy, even though you've got the right theology and you're doing real good in maintaining that, where's your love? And he doesn't just take the candlestick away. Although he's going to say, if you don't do something about it, I'm going to take your candlestick away. So without love, we're going to make sure we maintain our first love. This is where it all, can you hear? How's your heart? And here's how you fix it. Remember from where you've fallen. And they talk, call it a fall. This do in remembrance of me at the Lord's table. 
Remember what he's done. Remember the Lord Jesus. Remember the love you had at first. Bring it back to mind. Were you saved? Or was it just something that you did one time because you got caught up in the moment? Or are you being converted daily? Is the Holy Spirit working in your life? Do you feel the working of the Holy Spirit? If you've strayed, do you feel his fatherly displeasure? And do you sense the love and graciousness of God calling you back and bringing you back? Do you see and feel in need to feed upon him? Is what we're going to do in a moment the Lord's table that if you only eat it without faith and you're eating condemnation to yourself and you're listening to this without faith, this is condemnation to you. But it can also be the way God produces faith. It can also be the way God calls you back. But this remembering and then repent, change, change your mind, do something different, turn your direction. You have to be aware you have a problem. If you have a problem, remember and then turn and then do the work you did at first. Wait a minute. What do you mean works? He's not talking about works to get you saved. He's talking about the stuff you did when you first fell in love. Remember if you first fell in love when you had a girlfriend, you had a boyfriend? It's like love notes, letters, talking on the phone, you fall asleep. I don't know. Stuff. And later you don't do that kind of thing. It's not because you're falling out of love. It's because there becomes a deeper love. It's beyond an infatuation. But you've got to be careful that you haven't lost that love. And he's saying, so in the church, you'd be careful because you can lose that love. And you go back to doing what you did at first. Don't start off by, hey, start a plan. Start going out and working. Start doing this. He's like, uh-uh. You need to remember the gospel. You need to remember Jesus Christ. And you need to repent of that. You need to say, I'm sorry. I have left you. I've abandoned you. In my heart, I've turned. I've been growing cold. Please come into my heart. Please do something. And, and then the result of that will be telling other people about Jesus. Seeking repentance. Seeking forgiveness. Granting forgiveness. Being merciful. Being kind. All these things are fruit of the Spirit coming into our lives. And he says, if you don't, then I'm going to come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I can promise you there are churches which have not repented. And their lampstand has been removed. And if the, it starts with the elders, the leaders of the church, not saying this is what Jesus says. I'm telling you what Jesus says. Preaching the gospel. So your lampstand can be removed, which is interesting for Ephesus because at some point in their history, the entire city was moved. <laughs> Somebody had taken them over. The silt apparently was uh, rising in the river and it was putting the city in, in danger. So they picked up the whole city and they moved it. <laughs> so it's sort of one of these historical things they had in their minds. So he's like, you know, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to take your whole city. I'll take your whole church. You might still be there doing stuff, but I'm not there. Your light's not there. The spirit's not there. You're not doing anything but making people twice the child of hell is when they found you. So he's saying, don't let your heart grow cold. It's very important for us. So we had to kind of think, it's like, all right, what if there was a, a, um, a message to the church in Albemarle, Stanley County? What, what might be something I like to think in the different places I've been and lives, like what might be the little tie-in? And all, what I can think is, it's like, you know, don't be surprised if you don't turn, I'll remove your lampstand. And that what will happen is, uh, just like your whole textile industry, there's nothing but smokestacks. I think it's amazing. The places you go, my father worked in uh, 
for dealing during Millican I worked in Springs Industries in Chester County, you go, what you see, smokestacks. There's nobody doing it anymore. What happened? And they hear my father tell it, which he seemed to know what he's talking about, but I don't know. He said, um, the original owners of these plants retired, died, gave it to their children. Didn't pass on the zeal, didn't pass on the love, didn't have the same gifts. So they tried to take as much money as they could out of it, sold it off to Mexico or wherever they could do it, and didn't care about the people, didn't care about the place, and just finally just died. Don't let that happen to you, church. And I think it's a call to us. And he goes on, verse 6, I have this against you, you hate the work of the nickel, I have this, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's like, all right, you know, you're very good, and may this could be a condemnation of our church, you know, you may be very good at calling out what false theology and things like that is, and you got to be careful, we may be very good naysayers, we may be very good at calling out falsehoods, and that's great, and you need to. And whoever these Nicolaitans was, they get brought up again, and it's like, no, this is not good. But what about you? Where is your, your heart? And I can't think of anything worse than to have a cold heart or a heart that's grown cold and have to sit in church, listen to a sermon, 40, 45, 50 minutes. And you don't hear it. And it's just making you harder. It's got to just be awful. And many people in that situation have caused great harm to this church over the years. Check your heart. Do you listen? Do you have ears to hear? Do you understand the value of the message? Do you understand the Spirit of God is who is speaking through me with this gospel right now? And he says, if you do, and you conquer, you make it, you maintain the faith, you maintain your love. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Talking about the Garden of Eden. In the Septuagint, they translate the word garden as paradise. Jesus on the cross says, the day you'll be with me in paradise. The garden, you'll be with me in, and, and the word paradise in Greek, it's not just a garden where you plant fruit. It is a garden that's prepared for a king for his enjoyment. That's, what, that's how the, the Greeks translated that Hebrew word for garden. It's not just a garden in our yard. It's a park. It's a thing of beauty. It's a place where the king comes and enjoys it. And that's what the church is. The tree of life. And we'll see in Revelation 22, tree of life is in the midst of Jerusalem. We'll see that Jerusalem is the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. The tree of life is in the midst of the church. Jesus Christ is the tree of life. You can eat from him. We have that now, but you don't see it yet because when we enter into heaven, we get our heavenly inheritance, the kingdom of God, and we come into its fullness and we're glorified and we're there in heaven with all the saints that have gone before us. And the church is gathered in its beauty and its glory forever and ever. We have Jesus in our midst and we'll always eat. And it says it's a tree that produces fruit every month for the healing of the nations. And that's what we have to look forward to. But the question is, where are you now? Where is your heart? Is it grown cold? And we come to this table is where he says, you know how you keep it from growing cold? You know how you keep from becoming dead? You participate in my worship. 
You listen to the word, you read the word, you participate in sacraments, Lord's Supper, baptism. You see it, you think about it, you remember it being done to you. You're united by faith to what is preached and taught. And you pray together. And you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We pray that you would not just have us to be known for patiently enduring evil and for pointing out what's wrong with others and you know even as we might be orthodox in our teaching but that we'd have great love and we'd also pray for those who who believe they have great love but they don't have great they don't know what they love help us to have both spirit and truth so we thank you for the blessing is ours for the gospel that we're to proclaim that you would bring our hearts to life Give us great joy and hope and love. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.